What is it about religion that doesn't work? Why, why doesn't it work? You know, I have people tell me all religions are alike. Well, if you're talking about what they believe, that's not true at all. They're very diverse. But if you're, if you're talking about the fact that none of them work, I guess in that sense, it might be true. But here's the thing. You and I understand that no matter what people do in religion that's ultimately bad, I don't think they start off because somebody has bad intentions. I think, I think there were people that started off in a pursuit of God, a pursuit of truth, and somewhere along the way it became systematized. But then what is it exactly about religion, whatever the religion is, that doesn't work? And, and more importantly, what is it about religion that gets in the way and obfuscates the simple truth that God wants to get across to us? Well, here's the thing. In our series, Come Clean, we're looking at the stories of three individuals who came to Jesus Christ. And in Acts 8, 9, and 10, those three chapters, one by one, we meet them. And we see how they came to Jesus and how they came on different journeys. In Acts 8, last week, we saw a man from Africa who was a seeker. He was a brilliant man. He served the queen. He was the ministry of treasury. treasury, And he, he came to Jesus as a seeker, like many of you who come to New Spring. And then next week, we're going to see the nice guy next door or the nice, the nice woman that works that, that just does your job when you're, when you're sick and you can't be there or the person who mows your grass uh, when you're on vacation. And we're going to discover that nice people need Jesus too. But in looking at those two individuals, they come, they come to Jesus so easily and so softly. But in the middle of these two stories is the person that we know the most about because he, the first guy, like I say, comes from Africa. The, second, the last guy comes from Europe. This guy comes from Palestine. He's a Jew. And consequently, he is going to become one of the greatest people in the world. I mean, we're going to know his story. God is going to change his name. I'll always have trouble during these talks because at one time I want to call him Saul and other times I want to call him Paul. Well, that's because after he came to know Jesus, God changed his name from Saul to Paul. And we know his story that ultimately he will become perhaps the greatest Christian leader of all time outside of Jesus. And if you're holding a Bible in your hand... God used him to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, maybe 14. We don't know about Hebrews. So if we're looking at this guy and we see that he has to change, we would start off with the question, well, why does he need to change? Because he is a religious guy. And beyond that, if religion would ever work, this guy would have been a, he would have been a model home for religion. I want you to think about this. He grew up in a system where he went to worship three times a day. Now, if you worship at New Spring and you volunteer at New Spring and you come back to First Wednesday this week, you may make three times this week. And that's, that's commendable. But this guy worshiped three times a day. He went to the place of worship three times a day. He prayed five times a day. He fasted. That means he went without food. Two days a week. I, he has me beat by two days. <laughs> and not only that, but he tithed. That, that means he gave a tenth of everything he got. But listen... He didn't tithe like many of us tithe. I mean, and that's a great thing, however you tithe to the Lord. But this guy, I mean, these, this religion was so dramatic that they tithe down to their spices. Yeah. And if you were to invite him over to dinner, he would probably tell you, no, he couldn't come. You know why? Because he's afraid you haven't given a tithe on your paprika. That's true. In fact, sometimes these, these people were called bleeding Pharisees, the guys especially, because they were so afraid that they would lust after a woman, they would walk down the street covering their eyes and run into things. I'm just, I'm just saying this to you. If religion would ever work, I mean, you got to admit, this guy is serious. He's devout. He, he is ultra when it comes to worshiping. And in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, we get his story as he reflects back on his life before Jesus. Listen to this. I was carefully trained. 
Anybody here who can, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but you grew up in a religion and you were carefully trained. And, and I'm sure that Saul, like you and I, when we were carefully trained, if you grew up in religion, you learned a lot of good things. I mean, many of us grew up in religious systems that we struggle with today, but even now we would have to admit that we still learn some good things. And, and Saul said, I was carefully trained in Jewish laws and customs. But look at this next statement. He said, I became very zealous. Zealous means red hot. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did. That means when he got up in the morning, he's like, how can I honor God? I mean, when he went to work, how can I honor God? When he ate, how can I honor God? When he, when he used his money, how can I honor God? I mean, look at that. And, and I, I got to tell you something. Between you and me, if it comes to practicing his belief system, he's probably got me beat. Does he have you beat? So why does he need help? I mean, why is it he's going to hell? Because obviously what we learn from the story and what, what he'll tell us many times, this guy doing all this stuff is on his way to hell. And, and for me, this begs the question that we begin with. What is it about religion that doesn't work? Well, the problem with religion is that it runs 180 degrees counter to the word of God. If you're holding a Bible in your hand, if you have a Bible app, it doesn't matter whether you cut it in this book in Genesis or you go 65 books later and cut it into the book of Revelation. The Bible has one message. God says, come as you are, and he won't leave you like he found you. That is the message of the Bible. See, here's the message of religion. Religion says jump through this hoop, and when you jump through this hoop, here's another hoop. And you jump through that hoop, and there's another hoop. But God says, come like you are. Don't wait until you fix this in your life. Don't wait till you lose 30 pounds. Don't wait till you quit doing something or start doing something. Don't wait until you feel better about yourself. God is saying, come like you are. Why is that? Because God can't fix you. I mean, you can't fix yourself. Only God can fix you. This is one of the most important things I'm going to tell you ever, but definitely today. In any performance-based system, there's ultimately going to be distance. That's just a human component. You show me any performance-based system and ultimately distance will be the result. Some of you have been in dating relationships where acceptance was withheld until you performed. Am I fair? Am I right? You were dating somebody and this person basically said, look, if you want to go out with me, here's a hoop. If you want to keep in a relationship with me, here's a hoop. You got to jump through this hoop. Well, I mean, there are certain parameters that we all ought to experience in a dating relationship. But you know what I'm talking about. It's like you got to perform up to this expectation. You have to look like this. You have to do what I want you to do. Some of you are in marriages like that, where acceptance is withheld. And acceptance is withheld in order to get you to perform. Now, here's what I do know about every one of those situations. Ultimately, you're going to want to put distance between you and that person. Because after all, every time you're around this person, you're going to feel that sense of not measuring up. And you're just going to get so tired and exhausted trying to be everything that person wants you to be. You and I know that in the workplace, withheld acceptance is one of the key ways to get people to perform. But what is the ultimate response to that? Ultimately, it's burnout and I want to look for a different career. Am I right? So you show me any situation that's performance-based where acceptance is withheld until performance is, is executed, and I'll just show you ultimately a relationship where there is distance. God is very smart, and he knows everything. So here's the thing. God doesn't want you in a relationship where you have to perform in order to be accepted because he doesn't want distance between you and him. He wants closeness. See, here's the thing. Some of you grew up in religion, and you feel that distance, but the problem is somehow God's identity has been stolen. I really think sometimes God is the ultimate victim of identity theft. 
Because what's happened is you've gone through the process of religion, and religion has made you think that God wanted distance between him and you, and nothing could be further from the truth. Because whenever you open this book, the messages always come like you are. Don't wait till you start doing this. Don't wait till you stop doing this. Don't wait till you're happy with yourself. Don't wait till you're in a better place. God is saying, look, come now. Come, come dirty. Come broken. Come, come wrecked, as we just sang in the song a few moments ago. I mean, here's the thing. God is saying, look, let me take the pieces of your life and put them back together again. Because after all, you and I can't do it. And see, the problem with religion, and this is the thing that I think, and, and I understand that we could, de- we could define religion in different ways, but I'm, I'm sort of using it as we understand it uh, contextually within our culture. The problem with religion is this. It's a system. It's a system of things. It's not the simplicity of the Bible. It is a system. See, God says, come like you are, and he won't leave you the way he found you. Now, I want to be real clear about one thing. It doesn't mean come like you are, flipping God off, saying, this is what I am, take me or leave me. Now, that, that's, not, that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about just the understanding that we're flawed and we're broken and we can't fix ourselves, and we come to God, and God begins to work in our lives. And out of his work in our life, we really do begin to change. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this guy that we're going to be talking about in a moment, he would ultimately write this, that if any person is in Jesus Christ, he or she becomes a new person. That the old person is gone and there's a new person. Well, that's the message of the Bible. But religion can't make a new person. All religion can make is a a frustrated person. You know, you can always tell a religion, and boy, here's the thing. I'm going to like press you a little bit on this, maybe. But I need to. Because not every religion is a sacred religion. You know, when I talk to people today about religion, they sort of say, oh, okay, you're talking about Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Shintoism, Hinduism. You know, they sort of think about the world's great religions. Listen, guys, religion is any system that you believe brings you into a place of truth. Political correctness is not a philosophy, it's a religion. Here's the thing. You can always tell a religion because it behaves like a religion. It's always like if, you don't, if, you don't, if you're not completely orthodox, then you're going to suffer for it. And we're, we're watching political correctness become sort of the religion of our era. I mean, think about this. In North Carolina, they passed a law that said that if you're a female, you should go to a women's restroom. If you're a male, you should go to a male restroom. And that's sort of like one of the oldest things in the world. And yet you would believe it was some sort of novel, horrific approach. But the NBA decided they're going to pull the all-star game to punish North Carolina for their law. See, that's, that's how religion acts. That's as much religion as any fundamentalist, firebrand, Bible-thumping ultra-extreme religionist. It, it, it behaves like a religion. Religions behave like religions. So there, there are all kinds of religions. I mean, I, I remember one time I had a couple of good friends who were president and vice president of a non-theist society. That may sound strange to you, but we, we got to be really close. I actually did an event with them in their organization. And they met me here at the church. And they just wanted to meet with me and tell me they'd been attending New Spring. So I was just kind of getting to know them, so I asked a question that I thought would just sort of start the ball rolling. I said, well, help me understand, because you say that your organization is non-theist. I said, what, what, how would you see the distinction between an agnostic and an atheist, and what would you consider yourself? Well, I knew the answer to the first question. But the president of the organization, I liked him a lot. He, 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 wasn't the, he just never had any faith in his life for generations. And he, he started off telling me that he was an atheist, and then he started thinking. He said, you know... Now that I think about it, though, he said, if anybody could ever come up with proof to me that there was a God, he said, I listened to you preach. He said, you know, I don't agree with anything you say. But he said, you know, he said, if anybody were to ever prove to me that there was a God, he said, I guess I'd have to accept that. So he said, now that I think about it, I guess I would call myself an agnostic. That quick, like a bass striking allure, the vice president of the organization turned on him and began to reproach him 
for his absence of orthodoxy in calling himself an agnostic instead of purely saying he was an atheist. See, religions behave like religions. They're systems. And, 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 and if, you don't, if, if you don't drink the Kool-Aid, whether we're talking about, oh, you know, some sort of weird off, off, you know, offset brand of Christianity or we're talking about secular political correctness or non-theism, if you don't drink the Kool-Aid, then you get reproached for it. Religions behave like religions. Now, the problem with religion is it will make you one of three things. And many of us have lived this. I need to just get this out of the way because I'm going to get to some really good stuff in just a moment. But here, we're talking about what the problem with religion, with religion is. Any religion. Doesn't matter. You just plug it in. system will create one of three responses in you. Number one, it will make you quit. And there's some of you here today that have been there. You just like, you tried. You signed up. You took the classes. You memorized the information. You learned what you're supposed to learn. You regurgitated what you're supposed to regurgitate. You just did what you're supposed to do. You did the rituals and the symbols and, and you learned and you did what you were supposed to do. And finally, one day you just woke up and said, I'm not going to be able to handle this. I mean, I cannot dot every I and cross every T. And ultimately, you just throw your hands up and you quit and you say, I'm out. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but let me just tell you this. If that was your response to religion, you're in the safest place of the three. The second thing that religion will make you is a hypocrite. Because in a religion, it isn't long before we discover what the first group discovered, and that is that we can't measure up. But there are some people that want to stay in a religion. Maybe it's family pressures. Maybe it's just societal pressures or cultural pressures. They want to stay in the system, but they know they don't measure up. And so what they do then at that point is they begin to find workarounds. A moment ago, I shared with you that one of the religions of our day is political correctness. And I don't know where I come down on this particular thing, but, you know, we, we hear a lot about climate change, and there are sort of these preachers that go out preaching for climate change, and for some reason, there's a real collection of them out in Hollywood. And the thing about it is they talk about carbon emissions, emissions into the atmosphere. But the problem with these, these Hollywood types is that they travel around in private jets and yachts, and they emit more greenhouse gases than, than you and I and 2,000 of the rest of us will ever emit in our lifetime in a week. But they go around preaching to us that we need to not have cars. You know how they do that? They buy something called carbon offsets, which basically means, and, and you can study this on your own if you want to, but it's like, well, there are organizations that are working in order to relieve climate change. So consequently, they write a check to cover the usage of their jets and their, and their yachts so that they can still feel good about emitting all these greenhouse gases and traveling around the country and preaching to all the rest of us. You know what? That's exactly what religion does. I grew up in the Baptist church, learned a lot of good things. But I discovered in that religion there are workarounds if you know them. You, you can pretend to be orthodox, but there are workarounds. You know, some of you grew up Catholic, and you could tell me, man, there are workarounds in the, in the church, you know? I mean, there was actually a time briefly in the Middle Ages where the church sold indulgences. They, they needed to do some building projects. So consequently, if you, were a, if you committed a sin or you're afraid one of your loved ones had committed a sin, you could just sort of write a check, and they'd say, okay, that's kind of covered. <laughs> that's true. That's a fact. That's what Martin Luther started the Reformation over. But it isn't just them. It's every religion I know has workarounds. Am I right? If you know the right people, if you know the right words to say, then you can sort of fail and know you're failing, but you can stay in the religion. Religion will either make you, number one, quit. Number two, it'll make you a hypocrite. Number three, if you think you're doing everything that religion 
demands, it will make you mean. You ever meet somebody in a religion who felt like they did everything right? Let me ask you, are they sweet? No, they're a pain in the neck. Yeah. And you know what? That's what this guy Saul was doing. I mean, Saul thought he did everything right. He was an up-and-coming young leader. And like he said, he was trained in everything. He was red hot. He was very zealous to honor God in doing everything he did within his religion. And if you came to Saul, he would say, yeah, there are people that, number one, quit. And there are number two who are hypocrites, but not me. I do everything right. (sighs) There's a problem with religion, though. You know, whenever religion comes into contact with the real truth, the real truth will always show it up for being a fraud. See, here's Saul. He's in Jerusalem. Man, he and his cohorts, I mean, they got this religion down. They're tithing on their, you know, on their cumin, and, and they're, they're just so careful to dot all their I's and dot all their T's, and it's dead as a skunk that's been run over. And out of the backwoods, out of Nazareth, comes this young carpenter. And, man, he's different. Man, when he talks, thousands and thousands of people come. And strange things are happening. People that have been blind from birth are suddenly seeing. People who have been paralyzed are starting to walk. Dead people that have been in the grave are getting up and going around saying, here I am. And three years of that has really shaken this system of religion that Saul is in. And instead of them, and then why is religion this way? Instead of them going to Jesus and saying, okay, what are we missing here? It's like we got to kill him. Because if we don't kill him, we're going to lose influence with the masses. And so ultimately, to make a long story short, you and I know the story that they put him on a cross and he hung there and he died. And Saul and his buddies that, that Friday night said, okay, we have dealt with this guy. He is no more trouble to us. But three days later, boom, the door opens and out he steps and followers get to see him after he was dead but is alive again. And 500 people see him at one time and this thing is going nuts and thousands of people are beginning to follow Jesus. And Saul and his cronies are saying, we just thought we had a problem, but now we have a real problem on our hands. And so he said, and his cronies said, what we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to make it hard on these people who follow Jesus. Remember this, number three, After religion will make you quit or make you a hypocrite, it will make you mean. And so Saul sets out to do harm to those followers of Jesus. And he tells us in Acts 26 verse 4, he said, I was convinced that I ought to do what was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I put many saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from synagogue to synagogue to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I went to foreign cities to persecute them. Man, that's mean. That would mean like he would come to New Spring and he would go back to the wire where your your 12-year-old daughter is, her granddaughter, and he would threaten her if she continued to say the name of Jesus that she would be tortured, maybe killed. It it would be going to the hub and finding one of your teenagers and bringing them up and threatening them with torture if they didn't renounce the name of Jesus. It would be taking you or your wife and putting you in chains and shackles and carrying you off to be tried, maybe executed or put in prison. Hey, I don't know about you, but if I'm a Christian in the first century and this guy's like running around doing all this damage, I'm like, God, would you strike him dead, please? I think that's a sanctified prayer, wouldn't you? (laughs) Just kill him. You know, here's the thing. And and here's, if I'm talking, if I'm talking to anybody in religion, 
You will know it because I've already made you mad. (laughs) You know, the interesting thing was that God loved this guy. See, here's the thing. God saw what he could do if this guy would shake his religion and come into a relationship. Because when he did, he became one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. I mean, like I said, he'd write 13 books out of the New Testament. He would take three missionary journeys and take Christianity to the world. He would write some of the most glorious things in your Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus loved him, and he coveted him, and he decided somehow he was going to get his attention. So we read about this, and this is where it all starts. In Acts chapter 9, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice. And right now, what you're about to see is one of the greatest changes that happened in the history of the world. Here is a person all his life who's been in religion, and now he's about to meet Jesus. And guys, I started with a question, and I'm about to give you the answer right now. What is wrong with religion? Here it is. When you need a savior, a system won't do. When you need a rescuer, a ritual won't hack it. And if all you've got is a system and some rituals, it will not save your soul and it will not keep you out of hell. But I have the good news of telling you today what Saul is about to find out, and that is there is a rescuer and there is a savior. And he wants you. He wants you in his family. So now here is Saul. I mean, he's riding along on his donkey or horse or whatever he's riding. Man, he is going to Damascus. He's got a briefcase with open arrest warrants for any Christian's going to get to Christians, going to get to Christians. All of a sudden, God just strikes him and knocks him off his horse on the ground. You know, in a few weeks, I've been pastoring 40 years. You know what I've learned? I mean, we're talking about seekers and religious people and nice people in this, in this series. Man, seekers just come to Jesus so easy. That's the story of New Spring. So many of you were seekers and you came here. You, you, you never you knew religion didn't work when you walked in the door. That's why you came here. You heard there's this quirky church in Wichita. It's a little different, a lot different for that matter. <laughs> and seekers just come to Jesus so easy. Nice people like Cornelius, they just come so softly to Jesus. But here's what I've learned. God usually has to knock religious people down. See, I don't know why it is, but for some reason, religious people just don't want to get off their high horse until God knocks them off of it. And, and, and it has to happen, and I've seen it happen so many years at New Spring and other churches that I've served. I mean, you know, here's this religious person, and, and, and they're, they're just fine, and leave me alone. And I know I'm going to heaven because I've taught this Bible study, and I've, been, I've done all this, and I've memorized all these things, and I regurgitated them all, and I have a Bible, and I have a, you know, have a bumper sticker on my car, and I listen to Christian radio, and I know I'm just fine. All of a sudden, they get a phone call from a doctor, and the next thing you know, they're suddenly open. Or one of their kids, they trained up, and they thought that this kid's going to be perfect, and all of a sudden that kid's life blows up, and and it's just something about getting knocked off your high horse that makes you think, wait a minute, maybe I'm missing something. Now, in the time that I have left, I want to give you the three things that Jesus wants to get across to Saul. Remember, he's been learning stuff all his life, but somehow he's missed three things, and God wants you to hear those things, and if you grew up in religion like I did, he wants us to hear three things. You ready for the first one? Let me read it to you. I fell to the ground, Saul said, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? 
I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. What's the first thing that Jesus wants Paul to know? He wants him to know this is personal. See, here's the thing. That discussion was not about religion. It was not about the group that Paul was in. It was not about the hoops that he had jumped through and the groups of people who had affirmed him. Jesus said, I am Jesus. I am the one you are persecuting. This is between you and me. And ladies and gentlemen, if you ever want to go to heaven, you have to understand that it's not about being a part of a particular religion. It is not about growing up in a particular family. Those things may be fine in their places, but if you want to get to heaven, you have to understand this is personal. Listen, man, I've been to theology school. I studied the Bible and theology and theologians for years. But let me just tell you the four things that I know that are more important than any other. My sin is against God. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. I believe in Jesus. Those are the four most important things I know. They trump everything I know about soteriology, eschatology, pneumatology, Christology, angelology. I mean, those four things are bigger than anything else I know. My sin is against God. God loves me. Jesus died for me. I believe in Jesus. This is personal. So interesting to me, and I got to rush through this, but let me just throw out one little side, side note here. When Jesus answers Paul's question, you know, Paul is, he's grown up expecting the Messiah. Notice that Jesus doesn't use any of his titles. He doesn't say, I am the Messiah. He doesn't say, I am the Christ. He didn't say, I'm the anointed one. I am, he just said, I'm Jesus. See, if you ask Saul why he was killing these Christians, he would say, because they worship a dead man. And Jesus was saying, surprise. I'm Jesus, and you think you're persecuting them, but you're persecuting me. Let, let, let me just say this to anybody, because I know a lot of people watch us online or watch us on television. It could be that you're like Saul, and you hate Christians, and you try to do damage to Christians. Just remember this. I'm not trying to be personal about this. I'm just saying this. You remember that when you mess with a real child of God, you're really messing with God? And so that's what Jesus is telling him. This is personal between you and me. Now, the second thing that he wants to tell him is in verse 14, because Jesus said to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I love this. He said, it is hard. And we're so ready for Jesus to say, it is hard for me when you persecute my children. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He said, Saul, Saul, I don't understand why you're persecuting me. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, a goat is like, a stick or a prod that you use to influence cattle. Some of you came from farming backgrounds. The cow won't do what you want it to do. You sort of like use the stick to sort of move them along. That's a goad. Now, it would be foolish for a cow to kick back against the goad because it ain't going to hurt the person holding the goad. It's just going to hurt the cow, right? And that's what Jesus is saying to Saul. He's saying, Saul, it's hard for you. You know what gives me confidence? I mean, I'm a shy person by nature. You know, it gives me confidence to stand up here four times a week and speak to thousands of people here and people watching on television, watching on people that are far more brilliant than me. Do you know what gives me confidence? It's because in my hip pocket, I know that until you know Jesus, life is hard for you. 
And Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I think one of the goads, and this is the story really right before Right before Paul's conversion, actually the first time we meet Saul was the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was a young preacher who preached. If I'm Stephen, I don't understand. Peter preaches this message and 3,000 people come to faith. Stephen preaches like he's preaching from Peter's notes and he gets stoned to death. But the Bible just simply says this at the end of the story where Stephen is stoned to death. It says they all laid their coats at a young man's feet named Saul, which is tantamount to saying Saul was the one who nodded, yes, it's okay, go ahead and stone him. But see, here's the thing. I think every time Saul went out to put chains on a Christian, all he could hear was Stephen's voice saying, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. And I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. If Stephen led only one person to Jesus, I think it was Saul. And that's why our last son's name is Stephen Paul, because I feel like there's that connection. You know, here's the thing. Maybe he only brought one person to Christ, but what if it's Paul? Man, if this thing works like Amway, Stephen had a good day. Third thing Jesus wants you to know. First one is his personal. Number two, it's hard for you not to follow Jesus. <laughs> Saul, see, all he knows is religion. So here he is. He's lying on the ground. The first question he asks is, who are you, boss? I don't know who you are, but you're the boss. And then the second question he asks for him, what do you want me to do? See, Saul's a doer. That's what he does in his religion. He, he does stuff. He tithes. He worships, he prays, he fasts, he does stuff. And so Saul is like, okay, I guess I must have left something out here because I'm in trouble here. Uh, What is it that I'm supposed to do? And I love God's answer. God says, go to Damascus. There's a guy there. He'll talk to you. Basically what God was saying, Saul, was it isn't about what you do. This will be the hardest concept that you and I will ever embrace because all our lives, it's been about what you do. And you know what? Even if we articulate it and verbalize this, it's still hard for it to get into our groundwater because all our lives we've lived in a performance culture, but going to heaven is not about what you do. You can't do anything. Twenty-five years later, this same guy, as a follower of Jesus, is going to write these words. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this same guy who's lying on the ground 25 years later will make a statement in verse 13 that I tell you almost every week at New Spring. New Spring. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look, guys, if you need rescuing, just call out for a rescuer. If you're drowning, you can't save yourself. You have to reach up and call for the rescuer. And you are. You're drowning. You're drowning in sin. And religion can't help you. You can go to every church in town. You can, do, you can study comparative religion. What a crock that is. I mean, you can do all this junk. Do you know what Paul would say one day years later about all this religion? He said, I count it all dung that I might have Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know what the word dung is, but it's like a synonym for cow chips. (laughs) But that's what, I mean, that's pretty graphic, isn't it? Paul said, all this religion, in my mind, it's just dung in order that I can have Jesus. 
Well, Saul gets up, but he's still blind, and for three days he's blind. Why? Why? Because a lot of people accept Jesus, and they're not blind for three days. Why is is Saul sitting in a back room in Damascus for three days without being able to see? I'm going to give you my opinion. I believe God wants him to understand that this is time to reboot. Listen, here's the second most important thing I'm going to tell you today. You cannot incorporate Jesus into your life. Incorporate comes from the Latin in corpus, in the body. It means just to bring it in. What's already there? A lot of people want to incorporate Jesus. There was a missionary who went, I can't remember what particular field, but they had thousands of gods. And quickly, all the people accepted Jesus. And he was kind of freaked out about all this response. And then the chief said to them, well, we already have thousands of gods. We're always glad to have another one. That's not accepting Jesus. You don't incorporate Jesus into your life. See, for Saul, this is going to be a dramatic change. His, his, the people who were his friends are now going to become his enemies. And, and the life that he was living, he's going to turn from that and live a completely different kind of life. And that's not because he has to do it in order to be accepted. It's just that following Jesus. Here's the thing. When you accept Jesus, that's the most important thing in your life. Here is the statement that I really want to get across to you today. There is no such thing as a blank Christian. See, there is nothing that goes in front of that word. There's no such thing as an American Christian. There's no such thing as a white Christian. There's no such thing as a millennial Christian. There's no such thing as a baby boom Christian. There's no such thing, and and every once in a while somebody will write me and say, I am a gay Christian. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. See, there's nothing that belongs before Christian. There's no such thing as a Catholic Christian. There's no such thing as a Baptist Christian. There's no such thing as a practicing Christian or non-practicing Christian. There's nothing that goes before Christian. Now, once you get past that word Christian, we're in all kinds of situations. See, I'm fearful, but I'm not a fearful Christian. I'm a Christian that struggles with fear. See, what happens is when people tell me what kind of Christian they are, what they want to tell me is this is bigger than being a Christian. How does Christian incorporate into what I already am? That's not Christianity. You don't know Christ until he is everything. Because here's the thing. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So, you know, Saul makes that decision. In in several weeks, we're going to have a watermark, which is a baptism service. What's the difference between accepting Jesus and baptism? Or is baptism part of it? You know, there's a lot of stuff that gets all balled up there. You know, for instance, if you want to know why people baptize babies, about two or three hundred years after the church began, and there, there was this quirky teaching that said you had to be baptized in order to go to heaven. Well, of course, parents are freaking out thinking, well, if you have to be baptized to go to heaven, you get our kids baptized. That's not until about two or three hundred years after Jesus. But if I've learned one thing about religion, it can screw anything up. And so a lot of well-intentioned people do that. I mean, I still have people say, we got to get our kids baptized. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. Your child is covered by the grace of God. So what is baptism about? I mean, when you see somebody baptized, as you will, at New Spring, you see them go under the water and come up out of the water. What is that? You see, if you had met Saul before he knew Jesus, you wouldn't like him very much. But what baptism says is, I am not the person that I used to be. There was a person... And, and that person's not here anymore. 
because I've met Jesus and then Jesus has changed my life. And that person who goes under the water, I mean, we're, that's, a, that's a symbol of who we used to be. And that person is gone and up out of the water. Resurrection, there is a new person in Jesus Christ. And here is the deal. The only way you can truly be baptized is to be baptized after you've accepted Jesus Christ. It's so important to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation because baptism is a testimony of what's already happened. And so now here's Saul, you know, he's thinking to himself, well, you know, maybe I can accept Jesus and I can just sort of go back home and be a secret agent. You know, because after all, I don't know how my family will feel about me if I'm baptized, but uh uh-oh, there's no blank in front of Christian. Well, I don't know how they'll feel about me if I'm baptized at that church. There's no blank in front of Christian. So Ananias asked him this question, or he says to him, he said, what are you waiting waiting for? Get up and be baptized. And you know the rest of the story. I'm talking to some of you here today, and here's the thing. Some of you here, you need to make the decision that Saul made, which is to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Because all your life you thought it's about what you do, but you realize today there was nothing you can do. It's accepting a rescuer. And you need to take that step. Others of you have accepted Jesus, but you haven't gone public with your faith yet. And this is a great opportunity. Next Sunday night is the cutoff to register, so I just kind of want to let you know about that. And somebody could say, well, Mark, I'm struggling with this because I know my parents had me baptized when I was a baby, and I really respect that as well you should because your parents were acting on the light that they had. But by the same token, I need, to, I, I need to make this public. I need to make this my own personal expression, so I'm sort of struggling. How, how do I think about this? Let me give you a story, and it's legend, but it is a legend. There's a story about a nine-year-old Maharaja who was kind of compelled to give a priceless jewel to Queen Victoria of England. And he was making a visit after he was a young man. And his, what we would call advanced team, signaled to the people in London that he wanted the jewel back. And they were sort of freaked out about this, but they didn't want state problems. So when he was in the presence of Queen Victoria, they brought the jewel back on a pillow. And he took it over to the window and looked at it as the light shined on it. And with nobody knowing what he was going to do, he took the jewel and he knelt before Queen Victoria. Let me read the words that he said. Madam... I gave you this jewel when I was a child, too young to know what I was doing. I want to give it again in the fullness of my strength with all my heart and affection and gratitude, now and forever, fully realizing all I do. Who's here that needs to make that commitment? You say, when I was a child, I was baptized, and that's fine, but I didn't know about it. But now that I fully know, I want everyone to know that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Hey, there's a card in front of you in the seat back, and all you got to do is put your name and information on there and check the box. You need baptism. We'll work with you. We'll help you set it up. But the most important thing of all is that nobody should leave here without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven. Listen, Jesus wants everybody in his family. Can you say those things? My sin is against God. Jesus loves me. I believe he died for me. 
I trust him to be my savior. Can you say that? Then I want to pray a prayer with you, and let's nail it down. And these aren't magic words. These are just words. that You remember what, what, what Paul would eventually write? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, you're part of that whoever. So am I. You can call. And come like you are. <laughs> Don't try to fix all the things that are broken. Just come like you are. Let God work in your life. Would you pray with me? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. My sin is against you. I can't fix myself. I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I trust Jesus and only Jesus. All my trust is in Jesus. None of it is in me. I want Jesus to be my savior, my rescuer. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I, have a, I know we're crowded a little bit, but I have a gift I want to give you. You can go to guest services, one really close, right out in the middle of those doors there. There's a guest services, also one by the north entrance. And all you got to do is say, I pray with Mark, and they will give you this packet. It's got a DVD and a book I wrote that won't take you long to read, and a coupon for a new Bible. Thanks for being here. God bless. We'll see you next weekend. <laughs>